and that's the essential component is if you um, have the power to wield your sovereignty, uh, to bond or exchange information, value, then you also need instantaneous access to revoke it. Howdy folks, you just heard from David Ding talking about the transition to user ownership and sovereignty. I'm Jeff Nicey and welcome to the Blockchain New Zealand podcast. David is a self-described futurist and I haven't yet decided if he's a bit mad or a bit genius. I think it's likely he's a bit of both. By day, David is an innovation advisor at Callahan Innovation. He's deep in the startup and founder mindset and loves the potential that immutable distributed systems have for reformation. Before we get to David, a quick word from our sponsor. The Blockchain New Zealand podcast is brought to you by Easy Crypto. Five years ago, a passionate bunch of Kiwis created Easy Crypto in New Zealand to enable Kiwis and others to buy and sell cryptocurrency. The Easy Crypto website is simple and straightforward. They have heaps of great educational content that caters to both beginners and experts and are very transparent about fees. You can buy crypto with New Zealand dollars or with your credit card and get crypto sent directly to your wallet. Investing in cryptocurrency can of course be risky, so always do your own research. Visit easycrypto.com to start your crypto journey today. Um, are you good to go? Yeah. Hey, Vid, welcome to the show. Thank you for uh, coming down from, where are you based in? Uh, Newmarket? Parnell. Parnell, the one right beside Newmarket. Coming down to AUT here today. Um, I've been listening to some of your work lately. I'll call it your work. I don't know if it's actually your work, but I'm, <laughs> I'm sure that it's a it's a important part of you. And um, so maybe I'll just let you decide where you want to get started. I've kind of got like three topics on my list here. Um, and the first two are ternary thinking yep. and over unity systems. Yep. And so I don't know which one might come <laughs> first or might be better to talk about first. So I'll let you decide. You decide that. Can you tell us about uh, ternary thinking over unity systems? And then we're going to, you know, spool that into any blockchain chat. Cool. Yeah, sounds good. So ternary thinking, I call it, so my body of work I've been working on is called Trinity. And so the concept behind that is um, uh, binary infinity. So infinity in binary. So that's what Trinity means is binary infinity. So and it, where it gets confusing is that it's binary plus infinity to yep. make the three things, whereas binary and truth is kind of one thing. So it, it's it's a way of thinking um, applied to problem solving for basically anything. And, and so I've used it. Um, so my body of work's called Trinity, and I've got a number of projects I'm working on that have utilized this method of thinking for problem solving in, in different contexts. One of those is a software platform, but in truth it can be utilized to, to create any form of over-unity system. So an over-unity system, meaning that, um, well, you can't really have something that's over-unity, but it's a system that um, that draws a surplus beyond what it what is drawn, that, that pr- produces a surplus beyond what is drawn. So if you think of a, you know, a portfolio of wealth-generating assets and they yield a 1.5% return, that's over-unity, or a 10% return, that's over-unity. But it's that applied to any kind of system, human system, software, hardware. So a binary, binary plus infinity, right? Doesn't infinity include binary? It does. It does. But it, it's about um, it's about looking at it in a dualistic way as though it were separate. Because, you know, the truth is that, you know, everything is just one thing. But within our reality, it is also we also experience separation. 
So it's about leaning into the illusion of separation and polarity and using it in that context as if it were a separate thing. Separate as in like one is separate from zero? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. And uh, you said that zero and one could kind of be the same thing. How so? <laughs> so zero and one meaning that um, if you have an absolute presence of everything and an absolute void of all things, it's the same thing. The it's the same thing. The beginning and the end is the same. Okay. Yeah. Kind of like the closed circle. Exactly. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, binary to me, right, as a computer scientist, binary, very uh, black and white. There's a... Of course. There's <laughs> another binary term. And uh, so it, it kind of it kind of like is this culmination of all of this abstract thought through hardware that we, we've been able to create in this, in this uh, world around us, in this digital world around us. Um, what are some like... So if that's an obvious binary example, what are some what are some examples of infinity or and or are there any binary examples from nature? Yeah, so if you look at um, well, if you look at blockchain, I mean yeah. that's a, it's a great example of using um, ternary thinking to to solve a binary problem. So it, it, in this context, you're not looking at creating infinity; you're looking at leaning into the reality that infinity exists. So for this to be true, the equal and opposite must also be true from a singular perspective. So binary is dualistic. Infinity is singular. It's, it's just one perspective. And so an all-encompassing perspective. So in binary, as an example, if you have a monolithic piece of software and it won't scale, then the solution to that pressure is fragmentation. And so there you see a blockchain. So the solution to something remaining centralized and singular is to fragment its base elements. And that's what enables it to continue being monolithic, to continue being singular, but also totally fragmented. So monolith monolithic, would this be like big tech, something like, something like that? Yep, yep. Um, you know, it, the so to give you some context, the problem I've used it to solve was, you know, you've got blockchain in this massive you know, community and culture surrounding it. Um, but it's technology driven, you know, rather than um, kind of uh, behavior driven. You know, you, you can't just design a UX and then build up to it. You've got a, you have a dependency on the way that it works, which is very unique. You know, in Web2, you have, you develop the user interface and you build up to meet it exactly how the user wants to use it. Um, and so the problem, you know, using ternary thinking, I said, okay, well, how do we um, how do we utilize the extremes of both? And that is to build down towards blockchain and for blockchain to build up and to meet somewhere in between. And, and so what we're seeing now um, is, because ideally we want for it to be all inclusive, it has to be able to adapt to the user, like wholly. And so what we're seeing now is, so I pushed WordPress to its absolute limit, like, okay, yeah, yeah, like exhausted it. Because its superpower is um, how how fine you can um, a niche you can build something for. So you could have like a hundred different plugins; they're all virtually exactly the same thing, but there's a slight difference. And you, you see that right when you search for like an ad blocker or something, right? <laughs> yeah, You've got so many options. Yeah, and, and like the quality control is horrendous. But <laughs> the beauty of WordPress is that you your, your risk profile is your own. You know, you determine whether the risk is worth the reward of putting some random 
plugin with no with no reviews in your system. I I push that to its absolute limits, um, and it's like, okay, can we use WordPress to launch and scale a global SaaS company? Yeah. And so that's the challenge. And so the solution became, so we're not going to stop. We're going to keep pushing, keep pushing. And the solution came to the point where um, we had to build it headless to make it continue working. And we had to uh, build it on microservices. You probably know how microservices work. I know a bit about microservices, yep. Yep. So the plugin becomes a microservice. Yep. Now, the next evolution of that that we're just seeing now is um, event-based microservices. Now, an event is a, a completely new way of looking at how to build in Web2, which, um, and now with AI, you can you can teach it how to reconcile conflicts in potentially different languages um, to create an event-based solution. And so you have an event that's being coming from above, and you have a, a node or, or a you know, smart contract or whatever it is, that's where they're beginning to meet in the middle. And so you can now have potentially the unity there of event-based Web2 stuff and blockchain coming up to meet it where it is. So, I mean, this is Ethereum, right? Ethereum is a web, uh, an event-based uh, system, right? You, you, uh, you have to ping Ethereum to find out what happens or if you're writing a smart contract, you have to emit an event so that, so that we know the updated, updated state. And that is different from what we're used to in Web2. But I, but I, th I think, you know, obviously you know, a, a lot of integration has to go on and a lot of reconciliation, but I can see where founders are working at the moment. They're constantly pushing those boundaries. I had one just recently come in who's developed uh, a model that um, reconciles, that takes a monolithic piece of software and begins to translate it into event-based architecture. Yep. So um, I can see that gap between both is getting less and less. And so the, the monolithic piece, is that also like a walled garden? Like uh, in terms of permissions, uh, you, you, can't just, you can't just join and play? Well, that, that's, you know, that's another uh, problem for Ternary. So if you, look at, uh, if you look at the issue over data sovereignty at the moment. Huge. It's massive. Um, and if you look at how uh, you know, OpenAI have developed their model, you know, scraping public information um, and producing a singularity, um, and then commercializing it. <laughs> um, it's kind of like... And saying, oh, by the way, we're not open source anymore. Yeah, exactly. And then like asking for regulators to help. I mean, um, the absence of a duty of care in that space is concerning to me. But if, if you were to go at it again and say, okay, <laughs> we had a crack at this, how would we do it now? We actually want to incentivize people to, um, to pull their capability. And that's what we want in the singularity. But... In the singularity, we want to divorce it from the thing that you can own, which is your culture, your, your behavior, your events. So if you think about the way that you behave in the world, it's a series of events strung together in a macro. Okay. So imagine a stack of events, and the thing that you have sovereignty over is how you behave. But you can't own the alphabet. <laughs> so if you have a singularity, you need to divorce it from the interpretation of the omniscient layer, which is the all-knowing layer. And it needs to be moted and, you know, trustless. And I think the space we're moving into, you can see that that's definitely a viable option, um, as long as we can crack the event-based scenario. And in terms of the 
data sovereignty piece in terms of the like uh, at the web level of owning your own data or being able to uh, selectively release your own data. Uh, is this a pathway to tie into helping with that? Yeah, exactly. So w what we're seeing now is we're seeing uh, so we're seeing a move towards constitutional AI, which is uh, decentralized um, intelligence that could potentially be stored on your phone using a cold wallet-like system, um, and whereby you own all the events, you know, whether it's contained within a smart contract or whatever it is. I don't know how that works, but um, it's permission-based, and so. But ideally, what you'd want is you'd you'd want a um, you know a tokenomics structure that's incentivizing the sharing of knowledge, and so your um, your data is growing in value as an asset over time, based on your reputation of how much how useful your knowledge and wisdom is, and how how readily you share it with the community. I mean, this sounds like things people are at least aware of, and and working towards right in terms of protecting. Your, your reputation or uh, marketing, they call it your brand, and uh, also being able to, to carry it with you and selecting how it leaves uh, your device. Yeah, and that's the essential component is if you um, have the power to wield your sovereignty, uh, to bond or exchange information, value, then you also need instantaneous access to revoke it. And so, you know, we have to move towards, um, you know, there has to be, a centralized dashboard where you can see these this is these are all the ways that I've wielded my power and my sovereignty and I, I, this is no longer valid so I want to revoke that and it should just be like unchecking a box and interestingly in common law which is you know very different to statute law um, you know the right of revocation is without question or justification so in truth the will of the human being is is stands above statute and we can revoke um, you know, our, any power that we've given or any authority we've given in the moment. Certainly we can revoke any, anything uh, by our will, but that might not be the end result. That might not be the outcome that, that, is, that is achieved. Um, if we're locked into an ecosystem, we can say, I want to leave. Um, I'm revoking here, uh, you know, uh, the authority to leave. I grant it to myself. Uh, but then I turn around and say, oh, shit, it's the only thing that's available yep. to do what I needed to do. Exactly. And so you're either incentivized to create something new, a new solution, um, or that you have to reconcile the issue. You know, what is the reason that you want to revoke it? And ideally, that's what we want to do. And that's a key part of self-governance and self-sovereignty is that I'm not going to depend on an arbitrator to arbitrate this conflict that I have. I'm going to go directly with that human being and reconcile it as an adult. And so, you know, I think you have this massive push towards self-governance, but I think people don't really understand what that truly means is to be totally self-sovereign. Um, you know, if you want someone else to do something for you, there's some authority that you have to delegate or defer to someone in order to receive that help. And so we're so averse to giving our power away and, you know, the extreme of that is that we're, we've become averse to receiving the help that we actually need that would, you know, catapult us forward. So in terms of give it, giving your power away, are you talking about like, like in an extreme case here, um, perfect self-sovereignty, I'm like researching my own brand of cancer and figuring out how to treat myself or my family <laughs> and, 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 like, and like doing it myself and figuring out how to make some radiation drugs and things like this. Yeah. And, and like 
obviously that's that's not going to happen. I, ha I haven't dedicated my life to it yet, and it's not going to happen in time to save my family members. So I'm, how do you how do you say I'm giving authority to the doctors? Yeah, well, there's a lot of things you can do with your authority, and so the lens I look at it through is that you're actually totally responsible for your life. At, at the base layer, no one else is responsible for your life. You know, in nature, um, a meteor could come and your life could be taken. So you, there's no right or entitlement to life. It's a privilege. So in that context, I'm the only one that's responsible for the quality of my own life. Um, and so... That takes the pressure off me then. It's, it's all on you. Yeah, exactly. But if I want to improve the quality of my life, it's inevitable that at some point... I'm going to have to defer the authority for an aspect of my care. So in the scenario with, with cancer, it's a great scenario. I know that alone I am incapable of achieving this. And so I want to defer the authority for this aspect of this project or this care to the doctor or to the nurse. Understanding that I'm still responsible despite what they may do. They might make a mistake. They yeah. might, so, you know, they're part of nature. That a meteor comes, it just comes. You don't blame the meteor. <laughs> I think you've said that very well. This idea of like responsibility. We spend so much time like having commissions and inquiries and, you know, saying, you know, the health system is rubbish and we have to, <laughs> we have to fragment it and re put it back together. Right. And, and like the whole, the whole way through the responsibility is just like everyone's pointing at, at someone else. Yeah. And I guess you could say that about a lot of our, uh, our institutions or our systems. Um, where, where does this idea of, self-sovereignty and de deferring authority in terms of like the rule of law. How do you see that? So in the rule of law, uh, if you operate purely in statute, uh, which is I, I see as binary law, it's deterministic. What, do, what does statute mean? A statute means, um, you know, typical legislation yeah, um, okay. a, a, as opposed like for commercial entities. So it, a commercial ent entity that's bonded by statute is um, a, a legal person um, and a, a company, anything that's incorporated. And then the natural person is what sits in common law. So th those are two different things. Your will is what sits in common law, um, and your agency is what sits in statute. The power to speak and then the power to act. So, you know, as a human being, you've got, you know, you have a unified voice, but each cell has its, has its own agency. And, and so it's kind of that same thing. We, um, we just had Kirsten Patterson on the podcast, the chair of the Institute of Directors, and we were talking about DAOs, and she said, well, in New Zealand, you have to be a natural person to be able to, I'm not sure if she used the word constitution, but to run a run a company. And so as of yet, DAOs are, are not going to happen. Yeah, well, you have to be a natural person to run a company. Yeah, it, well, you have to be a legal person to, to, be, um, to set up a company. The natural person is not recognised uh, under statute. Under law. statute, yeah. okay. But but in a scenario, but you know, common law stands above statute, so um, the will stands above the agency. And so, if um, you know, in a scenario within which you can convert a common law um, will, I, I call it a living will. You know, in the world, you can have um, not the legal document that you give your lawyer, not that. Well, it, it's, it's an expression of your will. You're talking about like personal agency, that type of will? Yep, exactly. Yeah, um, yeah not that physical document. So it is my will that X, Y, Z, A, B, C. You know, that stands above, you know, statute. So in a scenario within which we can turn that, kind, that 
common law will into a principal asset and then bond statutory assets to it, it stands above regulation, legislation, everything. So, um, and you can see that it's edging closer and closer towards that kind of thing. Do you see blockchains as being a tool to enable some of this, or is it just like another step in technological progress? Absolutely, blockchains will be essential for this. Yep, absolutely. Um, whether or not blockchains hang around for, for the long haul, uh, I'm not sure. Um, and that's based on you know what I'm seeing in uh, with geospatial AI and um, the you know I had a founder come in the other day who's built a um, serverless blockchain, mm-hmm. um, and I'm getting the demo this week. Um, so I'm very interested to see how that's possible. I can't figure out how it's possible in my okay. mind yet. Um, but I'm seeing what the guys are doing uh, in the geospatial kind of spatial web space as well, and there are. Um, interesting alternatives to as micro transactions become more and more fine um, you know the, the gap between a verified transaction gets smaller and smaller you're getting closer and closer to um, an AI solution being possible especially in context of event-based architecture because um, you know we've there's another founder in um, in the ecosystem who's come up with a an algorithm for perpetually refuting uh, and, and conjecturing um, within an event. Um, and that's an AI kind of thing. So if you can have an event that's perpetually um, hardening, attacking itself and then hardening those vulnerabilities right. within a very small window of time, and that's verifiable, um, that's getting very, it's almost becoming a singular way to solve the problem rather than a frag- fragmented way. So these are just little symptoms I can see of where things are moving. The uh, adversarial effect there, is this similar to how like the chess algorithm gets better by playing itself? Yeah, Yeah. exactly. And, you know, we've got an incredible model in our ecosystem right now. Um, Founders, they've got an adversarial model and they've used a game of rugby to demonstrate its prowess. Um, So it's a digital twin of a game of rugby. It ingests uh, games of rugby and then it's an oracle, it becomes an oracle and predicts that if this rugby player <laughs> was uh, two centimetres taller oh, yeah, or this yeah. much heavier. Um, and But what it's actually doing is it's, you know, it's a singularity that's split into binary to play itself at the game of rugby and it's attacking itself and then getting better and better at defence against premeditated attack. And so the closer those moments are together of those microtransactions, the more difficult it becomes to penetrate. So this is a, a strategy game uh, as opposed to a betting outcome type of algorithm. <laughs> well, it, it's a matter of context, isn't it? Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Will it be live before the World Cup? <laughs> yeah, well, they um, the, the rugby model is, is completely finished and they're actually talking to the NZRFU about it. So, But their big play is the NFL. So they've almost finished the defensive um, model. For, okay. For just defense. I mean, I'd be... I'd be I don't know how something like the NFL, right, is very technical. Everything's set plays. Most yep. of it is is set plays. And, uh, like, I wonder what the crossover there is from, like, the video game, like the NFL yearly video game that gets put out in terms of, like, how you run your event tracking in a, in a scenario like that. Like, you, you've got a lot of moving parts there, right? Yeah. Yep. 20, 20 people on the field, yep. uh, set positions. Uh, and in terms of, in terms of microtransactions, I think this is 
still one of the optimum pristine use cases for blockchain. But as, as you said, once we get the um, verification between the time between transactions to come down, we can start running more and more events yeah, through exactly. the system. Exactly. And that's, um, you know, when you think about, you know, the, the flicker rate of a screen, you know, in, in that scenario where micro because at the moment, the, cl- the smallest gap I've seen is one second. And the, the, the technical lead is, is saying to me that he can go way beyond that if, if he had the capacity to develop it. But there's no need to go that deep right currently. So in that scenario, let, let's look at an AI oracle like the guys that have developed the rugby model. In that context, it's ingesting 2D um, videos, which are basically two-dimensional images, frames stitched together. It can ingest that interpret it and then predict the future. That's basically how your eye works. And so you're seeing a potential solution for vision for a robot um, that can you know, behave and react in the moment. So it's, it's actually really exciting to see where this is heading, especially with microtransactions. And I think blockchain will be a key component of that. Okay, I mean, yeah, that's, that's interesting. So you can take your 2D frames, use some recognition to figure out what's, what's where, take the next frame or the next couple of frames and then be able to uh, use the AI to predict what's happening, what's happening next. I mean, that's, that's a cool use case. Um, and that's how, you know, that's how open AI does its thing, right? It's, it's generating what it thinks could be the next token in line. You know, yeah. Based on, as you said before, based on basically scraping everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and so people, people say, oh, it's just predicting what word you're going to say next, but, it has to be able to interpret the meaning of um, of that in context to be able to predict that word. So it is highly intelligent at the same time. Yeah, you get a feeling of this when you use ChatGPT. Uh, I haven't used the others enough to know, but um, I like how they display what's happening and then you can see the AI going back and either correcting itself yep. or having a think round um, to give you better context. And uh, one of the Pro tips is that if you're not getting the answer you want, you can just ask it to try again. And it's going to use the previous context, that it, the previous answer it gave you yep. to try to improve upon. Uh, and so you're, it's not deterministic in that way. You're not exactly. going to see the, the exact same same outcome. Yeah. Um, it's deterministic if you understood all of the meaning of all of the events. Okay, yeah, yeah. good point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's non-deterministic because it, you, there's no way of doing that. Um, what is a geospatial web? So geospatial web, I would say, you know, you've seen you've seen the new uh, goggles that Apple have announced. Sure, yeah. Um, the the spatial web, I would say, is the emergence of um, a platform that enables uh, digital agents, like you know, the event-based scenario. It enables a digital agent to be immutable, and then for that to be bonded to an avatar, whether the avatar is a it's just a visual representation, like a persona, or whether it's an application, like front-end to a software application. You can have an infinite array or array of um, avatars that are trusted because they're bonded to an immutable event, block, node, whatever it may be. Um, and what we're seeing is that um, the tolerances of geolocation, so let's say a scenario where you're ingesting 2D information and um, you're projecting a, a digital twin of the environment that you're ingesting. As microtransactions get finer and finer and smaller and smaller, 
you're getting closer to a scenario where you can have a live in the moment digital twin of the environment and the only limitation is the censoring technology that's feeding it into the oracle so i'd say that's what that's where the spatial web is heading and in that scenario you ha you have a digital agent inside the digital system that can potentially control a hardware asset outside of the system like a swarm so i, I would say this is likely where this is going to head as long as we can reconcile the issues of open AI and, and that being the de facto standard for the singularity. I mean, th this idea of, of digital twinning, like, is there going to be, you know, benefits to humanity from this or is this just something else that we can do that might possibly have some cool <laughs> applications? Like, um, I'd say the coolest application of this is, um, you know, a project I'm talking with, with a, a group of founders at the moment, which is um, to use EV land, dormant EV land, you know, build a factory and make it entirely autonomous, you know, with robots and and, and then target um, offshore manufacturing in China and see if we can make autonomous manufacturing for one thing, um, compete against a slave labour um, market and bring it back to New Zealand. You know, in New Zealand, we've got um, so much land, sprawling land, highly un underutilised. Um, and so, you well, what know, do you mean? I can plant pine trees and get my carbon credits or whatever, <laughs> my carbon capture? Yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, so a scenario like that, if it's a trusted, if it's a trustless system, um, and you've got trust, uh, trusted digital agents controlling the physical agents, and the tolerances on the geospatial are, are really fine. I think the closest, the finest tolerances I've seen are three millimeters currently. So it's not like surgical. But it's kind of inevitable that it will yeah, okay. get to that point as well. Um, you know, blockchain would be a key component of that, or whatever we call it at that point. You know, it's kind of a fusion of a lot, a lot of different things. So that you have your immutable trust base to go from. Exactly. If, if you can say that I trust that system, like implicitly, yep. you know, that's the key to surrendering and, and allowing it to have the agency that you actually want to defer. What happens when it all goes wrong, David? What? Well, if we can't trust it, it will. <laughs> it, has to, yeah, it has to be moated. The, the, the base, the, the, the omniscient layer has to be moated and um, dependent um, on a power source that only human beings have. You know, it, it's, we've got to be very deliberate about how we build something like this. So you're a tech advisor. Are, are you advising people to like do this moated approach? And then like, how do you interact and like uh, eventually bring down the walls or whatever it is to get get folks in and use it? Well, it, it's a challenge being an advisor because you have no teeth. Like you just, if it were me, I would, you, okay. may, you may want to talk to so-and-so. Um, so often they don't take your advisement because they're undercapitalized and they need to commercialize something. So that pressure is always there. Yeah. But what I would say is that the ones that are, the, the, the mega geniuses that I'm, that I'm working with, you know, their model was moated and they have analog phones. Like they don't use smartphones. Like they're not, they're not stupid. They're not, they're not going to wait for regulators to tell them what they need to be doing. So, um, and this is a, this is a big challenge for them because this, you know, a VC auditing an opportunity for something that's yeah. so bleeding edge, they, they're just never going to really understand what, what it is, how special it could become. So, yeah, I, I help to bridge that gap as well between a VC and the founders. Yeah, difficult place to be. It's, I mean, 
it's hard for from an academic point of view to do some research, write up, write up a paper, and you know explain it with both a coarse and a fine grain language uh, to to meet your audience or to even be able to pick your audience. And so I can appreciate how uh, how you've got something that you're sure is going to work. All you need is <laughs> I don't know what the minimum would be. All you need is a million dollars. Why can't Why can't I raise a million dollars? Yeah, yeah. It's it's um. You know, but going back to overunity, it's like if you were to look at the economy surrounding the metabolizing innovation, it needs to come from a surplus. You know, that curiosity and that fail fast stuff that has to happen, where you're in that mode of experimentation where you're creating a conjecture that makes sense based on what is known. Um, but, you know, I need to refute that repeatedly. And you're in that fail fast mode where the, the failures are what you're celebrating until you get to success you can't constrain that to time could take five years could yeah. take 10 years and so that has to come from a surplus and so it has to come from wealth elsewhere and and i think some of the strain that we see in the ecosystem is on funds in new zealand are undercapitalized. like let's say the next open ai did emerge through the new zealand ecosystem there's not really a fund in new zealand that could go here's the five billion to shoot with the right. stars you mean existing funds that are earmarked for this type of work or yeah yeah, yeah. we're not expecting the next unicorn to come through new zealand um you know there's a global ecosystem that can metabolize it but um you know i'd say unless a founder you know goes through a really intensive ac accelerator incubator you know pre-seed gets them ready for seed and, and they go through that global path you know, the wealth generating asset at the end, it's not benefiting New Zealand, <laughs> unfortunately. Uh, so in terms of an over unity system, like if you're a startup, you might go, you might go years, um, you know, before reaching funding levels, before maybe even before going to market and, and being profitable. It, is this an under unity? <laughs> then you come up and then you're over, over unity. Yeah. Well, if, if you think about if you like a binary perspective is you create debt um, in order to go forward. But the ternary perspective is you zoom out and look at it in the singularity and the, um, the, the, the loan came from some surplus elsewhere. So there's surplus wealth somewhere that is willing to be deployed for stuff. So debt is just an enabler for, for the surplus to move around. You know, innovation in terms of how we structure the flow of capital and I think more debt, more debt-based scenarios whereby, I'll give you an example. We've got a founder who's, who built an insane proof of concept um, autonomous drone, validated the proof of concept. You know, he's gone through the phases, got MOUs, built the version 1.5, and he's now onto version two, which is the product, uh, which is the version that can be uh, dismantled go de-risk the value chain for manufacturing and okay. they can be manufactured. Um, and he's managed to get all the capital he needs, but through the valley of death, through get getting product market fit, that's the most challenging piece for any founder. And there's a void of capital because the VCs don't want to invest in de-risking it, rightly so. The founder um, hasn't got any capital to de-risk it. And so this, this stagnant situation happens. But if you, if you talk to that founder and say, would you put up the house? Yep, you get a second yep. mortgage. You know, would you 
put up the value of the assets, the intangible assets as collateral for someone to provide you a loan. Yep, absolutely. And so then you have this issue of they don't have the capital and VCs don't want to want to pay to create the patents early on. They want product market fit first. So th that's kind of the void that I play in and trying to pull right. both these parties together. Very challenging. Can be heartbreaking to see a founder in, the, in that state. Um, and, you know, the, frankly, they come to Callahan because, you know, we provide grants, you know, and they, they may be meet the criteria, they may not. And if they don't, and we can see the potential, then we try and metabolize that, you know, by providing connections, expertise, workshops. What, what is the de-risking here that you talk about in terms of what you, you said about supply chain for that example? But in general, what is de-risking? Um, de-risking de is um, product market fit. So I would, the, one thing is validating the technology. Yep, this is innovation. It's innovative. It's something new and it solves a problem. But product market fit is about the commercial viability of solving that problem in the market. And so, you know, uh, the strategy, the business model, the operating model, it needs to make sense as a wealth generating vehicle. If we pump money into this and shoot for the stars, is it going to become self-reliant, wealth generating? Is it going to need another injection of capital? And unless you can't, unless you can foresee those things, you know, then you can't align yourself with the right VC. You know, it's like, look at Zero as an example. They operated at a loss for so long. Because they know that that's, that, that was their operating model, um, they can align themselves with VCs that understand that operating model and they can have the injections of capital at the right time to see them through the valley of death. Product market fit is the, the enabler. Of death, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Pro product market fit is the enabler. It pro provides the insight to inform that, yep, this is, this is how it's going to work. And in 10 years, it's going to be self-reliance, wealth generating. And so we will have accumulated an asset of this much value. So it's all based on valuation the whole way through. Let's say you want to build uh, the biggest rocket humanity has ever built, and uh, you want to put humans on on a planet. Let's say Mars. <laughs> yeah. Right. How how do you convince investors? How do you sell this? And it seems pretty risky, building giant rockets, sending people to Mars. Yeah. What, what would you? I know I'm making you think on your feet here. What would you? Uh, how would you? How would you couch this? I I think about this all the time, um, and it's quite simple. It's proof of concept align a very small project um, as a proof of concept that it, it is in a, that solves a problem that is viable, that is aligned to the bigger thing. So what what is the smallest thing you can do here and now without needing anything else that you can stand up now? Try and stand it up. And if there are gaps, ask for help. But it's, all, it's always about standing up the small thing um, that could evolve into the big thing. And to me, that's this solves the problem of uh, a VC not understanding the big thing, but they understand the story around the small thing, and that that's valid and that's what they're backing. Not realizing that, in truth, the visionary behind it knows that we're going to be on Mars one day. And now, until you've until you've got like you're like Elon Musk, the equity of his brand as a name, that's what he's leveraging at this point. Yeah, the, the the whole world trusts that he's going to put us on Mars. We actually don't doubt him, but there's a million reasons to. <laughs> <laughs>
So, so when, when you've got that much equity in your brand as, as a human being, that's, that's what you're leveraging. And, and so you're, you negate all the risk or the de-risking because people trust that you, you can solve the problem. Yeah, we trust that he can hire brilliant people to follow through. Yeah. And we also trust that he's going to be working until he dies. <laughs> yeah. Man, imagine if he, oh, I mean, there's a huge amount of risk in the dependency on him in the way that he works. It's a shame. I think I think it's not sustainable. Um, but, you know, he'll upload his uh, consciousness into a, you know, robot or something. Yeah, yeah, that, that's right. There's <laughs> going to be some version of him living for a long time. Yeah. Um, I've got on my list here something called Beyond Blockchain. So you were, you are the first person that I've heard of that ha, that is in agreement, as you've as you said, with blockchain as a good technology to help us moving forward, but that also has seen or can foresee, um, maybe call it the end of blockchain or the next thing that's going to come up and replace or supersede blockchain. Yep. Uh, are, are all the folks that are committed that, you know, blockchain is going to survive long-term and be a worthwhile pursuit? Um, you mean like crypto or you're thinking the technology? Uh, I, I come from a technology point of view. Um, you can't completely disentangle it from crypto though. So yeah, yeah together. Yeah. So I, I would say that what what I witness is that when you have binary and you push it to its limits, um, then and it's a monolithic singularity. It's one thing. Fractures, like in nature, cell splits. They go around on their own, and then they realize they need help. They bump into each other. You know, a single cell organism becomes you know a multi cell organism, and a singular membrane is wrapped around it. And the, each cell continues to have agency, but it, it, it is unified. Um, and it, so it's wrapped. And so this is what I, I, I foresee. And it, it's along the lines of, you know, event-based architecture whereby if a Web2 uh, monolithic piece of software is built event-based in an event-based framework, then you can protect the event, the event as a singularity and as a, as a node, but the events become the chain, you see. So... To, to say that blockchain is going to vanish, what do we call that? Is it still blockchain? I it, mean, I'm sure it'll still still be around, still be possible to to use or build with. Yep, yep. Yeah. And it will probably be, you know, there's always going to be a network, like whether it's a neural network, and each um, each node is is an event. Um, what we call it might change, but there's always going to be a distributed and consolidated solution. So is the blockchain too like restrictive in its structure? Uh, that it's not going to be it's not going to be applicable and naturally something else is going to come in, some event-based architecture. Well, I, I think if you look at the problems that it has, it, it's onboarding. Um, it, you have to teach someone. <laughs> you have to tell someone what blockchain is before they can engage with it. <laughs> um, and that's yes. like, <laughs> so that doesn't, doesn't really work. Do you so, have an hour? Let me tell you about money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, you have to be an amateur economist. And in fact, most people that are into this space are beyond amateur. They're actually really skilled economists. Tokenomics, uh, you know, in and of itself. 
you know, is a DAO a good use case for running a community? Well, learn tokenomics and so the learning curve is massive. Yeah. Um, and so that's always the elephant in the room is that the community is moving forward at, at, at great speed, but there's a massive bunch of people being left behind. And so an all-inclusive solution is, is really what we should be aiming for. Yeah, I like how you said that. We should be aiming for an all-inclusive solution. Um, I'm of the belief that there's room for heaps of stuff. We, we can have a lot of everything. Uh, you know, these days, as you work with founders, I'm sure most of them are small groups, especially when you get started. It doesn't take that many brains to put a concept out there. And if you if you open source it, if you publish it, you know, then that's it. It's yep. it, it's been released. Um, and so in, in that sense, there's going to be lots of opportunity for new things yep. uh, to come along. I appreciate you when you when I heard you say, like, I don't think blockchains are are. They're not the end solution to our monetary problems. No, they're not, but they're definitely a bridge. Absolutely are going to be a bridge and an essential component that, to take us into the future. You know, there's no doubt about that. And, and I don't see it as an abrupt ending. I, I see it as a graceful uh, transition into something um, that is potentially doesn't need to evolve and develop any further because it is entirely trustless, because the singularity is moted. Because you know we can trust an autonomous factory and the robots in it, we know they're not going to turn on us. That that's kind of when you think of the singularity, that's what we t we think about, right? It's that tipping point whereby you know the the intelligence has sovereignty over its own code base and it's reconciling its own conflicts. And there's probably a unified language that it's pro coding itself in that a human being could never understand. And so I think just being honest about what that looks like. It's scary in context of us not ushering it in properly, but very, very exciting in context of doing the doing it properly. Do you think we're accelerating towards uh, tech singularity, like an AI singularity? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, I, I think it's uh, potentially already here, un but on distributed across. Well, that's, that's the next question, right, is can you recognize it as it's happening? It is very, yeah, it's hard to imagine that it's not already here, um, but it's limited by the program biases of human beings. But to think that there's not uh, some radical human beings with models and bunkers <laughs> <laughs> testing things um, would be pretty naive. I mean, the exponential nature of, of things is pretty stark. And if you zoom out on an exponential curve, it just looks like a, a step change to an asymptote. Uh, and and if you're in if you're in the smooth part, the elbow, like one of the best examples is like human population on Earth, right? Like nothing happened, and then boom. Yep. And you don't know that though until you have the perspective to be able to zoom out and be like, oh, hang on, nothing happened for millennia, or you know, we Absolutely. were busy doing our thing. Um, and. I think uh, general consensus is that tech kind of accelerates a lot of the stuff. For sure, for sure. And, and I think, you know, talking about tokenomics, I think how we incentivize the behavior of um, a market is an essential component of, of how we succeed and, and how quickly, exponentially we grow. If we're incentivized to share our knowledge uh, and wisdom rather than to hold it close to our chest and sell it to people, <laughs> um, then we're not going to grow as fast as what we could otherwise. 
but there, there has to be some kind of leverage, you know, in growing yourself, your reputation as an asset in that scenario. So I think if we hit that sweet spot, we could see a real ramp up of the sharing of knowledge and wisdom and an economy based on incentivizing people to do it that way, you know, grow their mana. Yeah, bring it on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, can you tell me about 11.5625%? I, I worked it out. It's 11 and 9 sixteenths as a fraction. Yep. Um, yeah, it's, it's so 10% is this constant. Um, so my, my career has been in um, taking an asset approach to managing a portfolio of assets, whether those are customers, whether they're the goods and services in a company. And my job is to yield a, a surplus of that portfolio. You know, I've got a team of portfolio managers. Their job is to have a smaller piece of that portfolio to yield a result. And when, so I've, I've got a blueprint I've been experimenting with for a long time on how to uh, make that run autonomously and to self-regulate, sure, of course. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so what I came to discover is that there, there is a sweet spot in terms of the attention. So I, I found a, a link between the attention of the um, of the portfolio manager into understanding the issue preventing an asset from appreciating. And so solely focused on unearthing that. And so when I remove all the obstacles and barriers preventing your attention from unearthing the, the obstacle to the appreciation of the asset, something just clicks into place. So for a portfolio manager, if they have a sales support person, if they have a better system, it's free, if I'm always buying back their attention. And then once I've got all their attention, I'm seeking to structure the attention in a way where their exploring and discovery is super refined and efficient. Once you get this going like a well-oiled machine, yeah. and then the portfolio manager has self-sovereignty over their own attention, so they then use it as an asset, they got a sales target they need to hit. So they might peg off at the beginning of, of the month, but they know they've got a target to hit and then ramp it up. You know, once they've earned the right to have that, that sovereignty, that self-sovereignty, there's a homeostasis that just settles in at a 10% uh, yield. Now that, um, that one point, <laughs> that one sixteenth, I talk, I devote, I talk about that as innovation, where the innovation happens. And, and so if you're devoting 1.5%, 5.625% to that, then that's the expansion. You know, the rate of, in my hypothesis, is that that's the rate of expansion of, you know, any over unity system by default through pure observation without, without, without action. And so if you look at um, a vortex, if you, look at the, um, if you look at the mathematics around it, if you take a square and you split it in half, you, if you take a singularity, split, make it dualistic by splitting it in half, then you draw another one, split that in half, split that in half, split, keep splitting, it's, inf it's infinite. And it, it, you, you find that there's an over unity of 1.5625. Just to recap here, so 10% 10, 10 that's sort of like your, your standard over unity in order to achieve surplus. And then the little extra bit, that's where the innovation happens. Yeah, that that's the unknown. And like, I mean, that's kind of, that's kind of like, um, that's quite positive that it, 
it's not like you need another 100% attention or, a, you know, another sort of inattainable amount of concentration. Um, but if you can sustain or have just a little bit more than you're seeing. Yep. And, but the, the key is that it has to come from a surplus. If you, if you do it from a deficit, then you're putting your survival at risk. Okay. So if you're always catching up, yep. then it's no good. And that, you know, biologically that flips you into fight or flight, you know, rather than um, wealth. And, you know, wealth is, to, to my mind, is a is to understand that you live in binary, and that there is lack of things, um, but to maintain a surplus that has, you know, that means if there is a black swan event, then um, you're 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 going to survive. If you never question your survival, then your curiosity will just bubble to the surface, and you can explore that. To, to the tune of 1.5625. <laughs> I mean, these are it's a hypothesis. I'll never prove it right or wrong. Uh. But, um, you know, I, I've had experience creating over Unity systems in workplaces, and that's what I've discovered. Well, maybe you won't prove it. Maybe somebody else will. Yeah, it's possible. You never know. Um, so presently you are with Callahan. You mentioned Callahan already. Um, Callahan is a member of Blockchain New Zealand. I think they're probably a member of all of NZ Tech. Um, what do you see as like the value add role to being a member of an organization such as such as blockchain tech and uh, so, such as blockchain New Zealand? Um, and perhaps that's how I met you originally. I'm not sure. I don't yeah. remember. But um, yeah, in, you know, in terms of being members of these various groups, uh, how do you see that as being beneficial? Um, I think the huge benefit is um, your ability to influence um, at a high level. And I think you have a lot of credibility and smarts um, and, you know, you can be impartial, you know, and a genuinely impartial voice that is heard and respected in the ecosystem. Um, so we obviously want to amplify and accelerate um, everything that you're doing because you can cast that all-encompassing lens across the ecosystem and see um, what needs to be reconciled between parties. Um, and I think... Um, yeah, I, I think you cast that really high-level lens at, at a very high level, and I think that works great in a symbiotic way with Callahan, where we're kind of we are a government agency, but we are um, biased by the acceleration of a founder's innovation, um, and and so that's kind of feels more more bottom up. Yeah, and you guys are more top down, and we kind of meet in the middle, you know. So that's kind of how I see it in my mind. Um, I think we're getting better at collaborating and figuring out where the white space is. But yeah, that's the benefit I can see. Coming to the end of our time here, I just have two rapid fire questions <laughs> sure. for you. You don't have to answer them rapidly if you don't want. Mm -hmm. uh, so the first one is philosophical. Do we have free will? <laughs> um, or you can tie it into sovereignty. Well, I'll tie it into ternary. Okay. Um, yes and no. So there is a beginning and there is an ending to everything. Um, within that, so that's deterministic. You're going to die. The universe is going to end. So there is an ending. We know it. So that's deterministic. So in that scenario, destiny is real. You're destined to return to nothing. So we already know that we have a destiny. Free will is the space in between. 
And so how we navigate our path to that is totally down to us. We have that agency. Um, and, and it's kind of the same way, you know, you know, I always look at the human body, has a unified voice, each cell has um, sovereignty and agency, it works together symbiotically, perfectly. Um, and yet, you know, I determine the ending, <laughs> the decisions that I make, really. But the space in between, each individual cell is, is self-determining for itself. So, yeah, the answer is both. Ternary. <laughs> uh, last question for you today. Who is Satoshi Nakamoto? Um, I think it's a founder I'm working with. No. Yeah. <laughs> you know, when you think about it, if it's, if it's not a real person, doesn't even exist, that's a masterstroke, whoever came up with the persona, because it diverts your attention away from every other possibility. Yeah. And the narrative around it is so big and powerful now. It's just, you know, if you wanted to distract people's attention from the, the true source, that would be an ingenious way to do it. Um, you know, the question I have is, did he, if he had, if he exists, have the foresight to envisage what it could have become? Um, because if so, that's a level of genius. Like, it's incredible. Yeah, it Unbelievable, yeah, difficult to, to parse. Yeah, yeah. And so I marvel at it, really. And it, it's a nice thing to believe in when you think about it. It's a very nice origin story for, uh, for Bitcoin. Yeah. Um, David, thank you very much for coming on the show today. My pleasure. Thanks, mate. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks for joining us, folks. Look out for the next episode of the Blockchain New Zealand podcast, probably in the same spot you found this one. Cheers. <laughs>